I graduated in December of 19 years ago, as a matter of fact. And uh, you all, I guess, were probably in preschool at that time, something along those lines. But I graduated from Murray State in, in December of 1999 with a degree in secondary education and history. And I was off to a, to a teaching career, or so I thought. And I, I wound up teaching for about four years give or take, and, and then the Lord called me into ministry and, and uh, positioned me in my home church, and, and then from there we spent a year at a church in Atlanta, and then the Lord called us here, and we've been here now for, for 10 years. And I, I remember walking across that stage to shake the hand of, of the president at the time, Kern Alexander, who just so happened to be my uncle's brother-in-law, and so I knew him, and, and I walk across, and I receive the smile and the handshake, and and then I, I get to the end of that, and I think, okay, now, now what? <laughs> you know, I, I'm done, I guess. I graduated. Maybe you've had those times in your life where you say, okay, I, I see where God has worked up to this point, and, and I, I'm not sure what he wants to do next. I, I want to be used by God. I, I'd like for God to work in my life. I really, I, I really want to make sure that my life is, is going in his trajectory, but, but I'm not sure what to do. Now, I'll tell you this morning. I'm not here to answer all those questions. I can't tell you specifically what it is that God will do or wants to do in and through you. All I can do is look at the scripture at some examples and say, here's how God has used people in the past. And it seems as if, because God has not changed, that he would be using people in a similar fashion. There are probably some folks here today who, who've given up, though, on God using your life. You've reached a particular age and you say, well, you know, that's great for, you know, young college students. Of course, you know, the whole, whole world and their whole lives are in front of them. And yeah, God can certainly use a person like that. But, you know, I, I'm in my 70s. What world's God going to do with me? You know, I, I'm at a stage of life where I don't, I don't have any time. I'm raising kids right now. Or, or, or you know, I've been through a, a very difficult time in my life. I, I've recently lost someone love dearly or I've recently been divorced or or tragedy has struck my family and and there's no way that God wants to use me I mean it's just it, I'm just kind of done this morning I, I hope for wherever you are whether you're a person who right now says I am so desperate for God to use me or a person who says I don't really think there's anything that God can do in my life one way or the other I really hope and pray that this morning will not only be an inspiration to you, but some sort of guide and a challenge. Because I, I really believe that, that there is there's a truth that, that very few Christians will experience. First thing there on your notes this morning. A truth that very few Christians will ever experience. And that is that there is no limit. No limit whatsoever to what God can do through someone who is completely surrendered to him. Now this was attributed to D.L. Moody years and years ago. And actually, as I studied this particular statement, D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, was not the one who said this, but this was what someone picked up from one of his sermons. And a man walked up to, to Dwight Moody after the sermon was over and he said, he said, Pastor, I, I really believe this is what God was saying through you today, that there is no limit to what God can do through someone who is completely surrendered to him. Many examples of this in scripture, you look at the life of Moses, 
Moses was a man who at first was not surrendered to the Lord. If you know his story, he ran from God for several years, the first two-thirds of his life, and then finally, really under compulsion of God, said, okay, I, I give up, I surrender, and God used him in a way that he never imagined. John the Baptist is another guy who was like this, who even before his birth was set apart to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And, and John the Baptist was a man the Bible describes as someone with a very special calling and a very specific style of life that he had to surrender to. And, and he did and paved the way for Jesus. The Apostle Paul is another guy who on the road to Damascus, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, on the road to Damascus, Paul is blinded by the light. Some of you will sing that song the rest of the day. He's blinded by the light, and as a result, he sees and understands the truth of Jesus, knocked to his knees, and is changed forever, and completely surrenders to the Lord, and becomes the first and greatest Christian missionary. Uh, we see that in history as well, folks who have surrendered. I mentioned earlier the Moon Christmas offering. Lottie Moon was a person, by the way. She was a missionary who was so desperate to see God work in and through her that she left, actually turned down a marriage that would have kept her in the United States, turned down a marriage to go overseas because the, the man that she was going to marry did not feel the same calling. And she said, this is God's calling on my life is to go be in missions. And as much as I love you, if that's not God's calling on your life, we can't be together. And so she declined his offer of marriage to go overseas and live as a missionary, and began writing letters back to the United States, encouraging her fellow Southern Baptists to, 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 to give generously toward overseas missions. There's a reason that the Christmas offering for international missions is named after that wonderful lady. Uh, there, there's a young lady right now. Her name is Leah Sherabu. She is in Nigeria, captive to Boko Haram. One of the young ladies who was um, abducted back in February. And she right now is forever prison, we think, unless they release her. And yet it is her faith, a 15-year-old girl, her faith that is inspiring hundreds of thousands in and around that area to consider the truth of Jesus Christ and even causing some of the Muslims around that area to question what this terrorist group is doing as they see someone who remains steadfast in their faith. Lots of examples in Scripture, lots of examples in history of people who completely surrendered to God and He used them in ways that were limitless. And you've got people like that in your life as well. Uh, my grandmother grew up in a, in a home with several brothers, none of whom walked with God. Many of whom, who, who, they, they were alcoholics. And, and ruined their lives because of it. But my grandmother decided that she was going to follow the Lord. And if she were sitting here this morning, she's, she's still living, thank God. But she's not able to go to church much these days. But if she were sitting here today, she would say, you know what, I'm not the perfect Christian. But I made a choice at one point that I was going to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. And it was as a result of that that she began to take her sons to church. And they came to know the Lord, and one of those was my dad, who then led our family down the path of Jesus, and I stand here today as a result of a grandmother who said, I will do things differently. I will surrender to the Lord. And then she prayed for a preacher to be in the family. She told me that for years. 
I'm like, thanks a lot for that. <laughs> Appreciate Thank you. I was about 10. She said, you're the one. I'm like, uh, no, no, I'm good. Thanks. But anyway, I stand here so you can either thank her or curse her. I'm not sure. But I'm here today because of that. And many of you are the same way. You, you've got a relative. You've got a, a friend. You, you have a, a church leader. You have somebody in your life who completely surrendered to the Lord, and you are not the same as a result of their surrender to the Lord. And this morning, I want you to understand that some of the lives that you might think or that others might think are relatively insignificant in the grand scheme, yours may be included. When they are surrendered to God completely, there is no limit to what he can do through somebody like that. And church, there is no limit to what God can do through a church fully surrendered to God. And I say this and I encapsulate it in, in, a, in a, a truth that few Christians experience. You know why? Because I really think that's true. I think most of us simply go through the motions of life, myself included. I think most churches just are content to try to fill the building and pay the bills and never truly want to see what God can you do through a life, through a church, fully and completely surrendered. And I can tell you the answer to that. What can God do? Anything. And I don't know. (laughs) Anything he wants. And it will all be for his glory and his kingdom. Today, we're going to look quickly at the book of Acts. If you've got a Bible and want to turn there, it's over in the New Testament. It's right after the Gospels. Acts gives us really the beginnings of Christian history, if that makes sense. The beginning of of church history. The Gospels give us Jesus' history. The book of Acts gives us church and Christian history, the very earliest portion of it. We're going to look in the the book of Acts, and particularly in chapters 6 through the very beginning of chapter 8. We're not going to take the time to read every part of this, so I would highly encourage you to make a note of it. Go back this week, read it, study it. If you need something for your personal devotional time, this would be tremendous. Studying again uh, the life of a man who at the time would have seemed very insignificant, whose life ended, we would think, way too soon. But a man who God used in ways that this guy and those around him would have never imagined. He was completely surrendered to God. We're going to look at the life of Stephen this morning. He was the first Christian martyr. Some of you may know his story, and if you don't, I hope that you find it very intriguing and very challenging, and the Holy Spirit speaks to you through it. I want to look just at some different parts of his stories. We're going to read this all the way through, just so you know. But I, but I first want to look at, at his, his complete surrender to the Lord, just who he was and what it meant for him to surrender. Look in verse 8 of chapter 6 in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6, and then get with verse 8. Stephen, it says, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So here's a guy, it says, is full of grace and full of power. So he's got character that's full of grace full of God's grace, and it is gracious to other people, as we'll see. And his life is obviously full of God's power. Both of those were evident. That's what he's known for. 
being full of grace, full of power. I wonder if folks around you would say, what is that person known for being full of? Would they say grace and power? I don't know. Hopefully they would, but let's just, for the sake of argument, say that's what you want them to say. Full of grace, full of power. That was Stephen. Then look at verse 10. It says they, talking about these folks who challenged him, and you see that in verse 9, they challenged him based on what he was teaching, and it says they were unable to stand up against the wisdom and the spirit by whom he spoke. So he's, he's full of grace, he's full of power, he's also full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. The religious leaders of the day did not like his message. Why? Because it wasn't the message they were preaching. He was preaching against them and their teachings and for Jesus and his teachings. And so you've got a a disagreement, obviously, and the religious leaders come and they try to shut him down. They're going to debate him. And they're going to say, well, our argument is better and so on. They could not say anything to him because he was so full of wisdom and so full of the Holy Spirit that the Spirit of God gave him the the words to say and so on. Listen, some of us are so concerned about making sure we know everything that we can about the knowledge of this world so that we can debate other people who don't believe in God. What we need most is to be filled with grace and power and the wisdom of God and the Spirit of God. God can work through somebody like that. You may be around a person. You may be around several people each and every day who are not believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, they may be atheists and say there is no God whatsoever. They may be absolute naturalists and say the only thing that we have is what we can see and touch. And you're trying everything that you can do to come up with an argument, something that's going to click and it's going to change their mind. You know what? The only thing that will change their mind is the power of God's Holy Spirit working in and through you in such a way that full of grace, full of power, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, God's speaks through you. It's not going to be because of your fancy argument. Although we need to know our stuff. You understand what I'm saying? Stephen was a guy, when they come to argue with him, he just spouts off the wisdom of God and full of the Holy Spirit. And that is very, very powerful. So they couldn't beat him in a debate. And so in verse 11, here's what they do. Then they induced men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came up, dragged him off and took him to the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was the governing body there of the religious leaders. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that Jesus, this Nazarene, isn't that great how they they put it? Jesus to them, just a Nazarene. This Nazarene will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. They, They couldn't beat him in a debate. And so they try another route. They convince some people you see here to, to say he's, he's speaking blasphemy. They're going to try to have him arrested on religious terms. He's saying things they say that aren't true. Now Stephen no doubt had been speaking about Jesus. He had been speaking about how Jesus came to fulfill God's law and how he came to to then give the spirit so that the the new temple of God would be the people of God. But what they're saying is that, no, 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 he's against God altogether. He's against everything that we believe in. They considered his teaching to be blasphemy, just like they did with the teaching of Jesus. Both of them taught that God alone held truth and that God does not dwell in one place only. And they could not handle that. Stephen's opponents believed that the word of the religious leaders was equal with the word of God. And they believed that the temple was just as holy as God himself. And so when Stephen, echoing the words of Jesus, says, whatever you all say is not equal with 
Scripture, not equal with God's Word. When he says that this temple is just a building, just a place, they can't handle it. They were concerned with holding on to their traditions and their buildings. Does that sound familiar in American Christianity? Does it sound familiar in the Southern Baptist world? Really concerned about our traditions and our buildings. If Jimmy Bell were here this morning, he would say, Preacher, this is when you stopped preaching and started meddling. (laughs) And I probably am to some degree. But I've read recently that it is the job of the preacher... I mentioned to a good friend of mine not long ago, it is the job of the preacher, the job of the the spokesman for God, as much as I sometimes am reluctant to do so, to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. And so this morning, maybe if we're a little comfortable in our traditions and in our buildings, we need to be afflicted just a little bit. Stephen comes preaching about that God and God alone has truth and that Jesus and Jesus alone is the way for salvation and that the new temple of God is the people of God and they didn't like it. But they could not deny in verse 15 that his relationship with God was evident. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now I don't know if his face glowed or not. That'd be kind of cool. But, but I, I know this, that it was evident that here's a guy in tune with God. It, it appeared that he was reflecting the glory of God. There's something about the look on his face. Whether it was some sort of supernatural glow, I don't know. But it was something about him that they said he looks like an angel. Where are the angels? In the presence of God. Something they could not deny that this guy knew the Lord. Anyway, chapter 7, the pressure is on. And they go to him and they say, is this true? Stephen was a guy so filled, so surrendered to God that he never changed his tune when the pressure was on. He launches into a sermon that if I preach this sermon toward us in the way that he preached it with the same effect, you all would run me out of town just like they did him. I guarantee you guarantee you. You know what he called out? All the stuff that they were believing that wasn't true, all the things they were doing that had nothing really to do with God, all the things that they were so, so beholden and and holding tightly to that were just traditions and so on, and man, he blasted them. Blasted them. I, I don't want to ruin your meal, so I won't do all that this morning, all right? But listen, you've done the same things. You, you sit around and you say, you know what? This isn't what Christianity is about. We don't, we don't have to do this. Then I tell you what, this is just getting in our way. If we would only just surrender those things to the Lord, then God could really work through us. You've, you've done the same things. But anyway, he launches into this sermon. But he had a moment of truth. Is this true? He could have gotten out of the punishment that he knew was coming. Uh, it, It was a moment much like what Jesus faced in front of Pilate when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus at that moment could have said, well, it depends on your perspective. Stephen at this moment could have said, well, I mean, you know... Sort of, but you know, I mean, let, let me let me kind of explain it to you. Let me let me smooth this over a little bit. You know what Jesus says? Yep, 
true. It is as you say. You know what Stephen does? Launches into a sermon (laughs) to defend all the things that they were saying about him. He gives an address to them all through chapter 7. We won't take the time this morning to read it all. But all through chapter 7, he recounts Jewish history. And 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 then he, he turns it around to them. And he tells them that they have rejected God by rejecting the people that God has sent to them. What he essentially tells them is that worship is not limited to the geographical area of Israel, nor is it it limited to the temple that was so special to them. And he says, the Jews, you, he says, have constantly rejected God. He was far more concerned about being faithful to Jesus than he was about pleasing those people that day who listened to him. And he was far more concerned about pleasing Jesus in that moment than he was about just making sure life was comfortable for him as he moved forward. His words were bold and they were tough, but they were not unbiblical. He wasn't saying any of this stuff for effect. But he was saying it maybe to capture their hearts. To help them understand the error of their ways. And it says in verse 54 of chapter 7, When they heard these things, when he got done, when they heard these things, they were enraged in their hearts and they gnashed their teeth at him. There's some really interesting symbolism here, some stuff that this, when it says that they were enraged, some of your older versions, if you're using maybe New American Standard or even King James, New King James this morning, it, it might say cut to the quick, which is an old way of saying they were sawn in half. That's how painful this was for them to hear. And it says they gnashed their teeth. They're mad. Oh, they're so fired up at him. This is a sign of absolute disgust and hatred. They, we're going to get you. Except they were serious. And in all of this, because he is so surrendered to the Lord, he is the exact opposite of them the whole time. Look in 54. They heard these things. They're enraged. In their hearts, they gnashed their teeth. But what? But it says in verse 55, but Stephen filled by the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. What would you do at that point, honestly? You face those people? They hate you? I'm just going to gaze into heaven. Man, is it so tempting not to just gnash your teeth right back? It says he gazed into heaven. And he saw God's glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they screamed at the top of their voices, stopped their ears, and rushed together against him. They're screaming so they don't have to hear it. They close their ears because they think it's blasphemy and they don't want God to hold them accountable for hearing and paying attention to blasphemy. And then they rush at him. They threw him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They were stoning Stephen as he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And saying this, he fell asleep. This dude is incredible. Is he not? He's incredible. 
while they became enraged, he remains peaceful. While they're filled with hate, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. While they defended themselves and their position and their precious traditions and their precious temple, he saw heaven opened up. (laughs) While they screamed at the top of their lungs, he doesn't say anything. When they begin to kill him, he remains faithful to the end. And when they sinned against him, he prays for their salvation. I said, this dude's incredible. We would call him weird. We would. Don't you know your rights? Don't you understand they can't do this to you? His life was brief, but God would use it in a big, big way. Chapter 8, verse 1, Saul who later became Paul, the apostle. Saul agreed with putting him to death. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. But devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church, and he would enter house after house, drag off the the men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way proclaiming the message of good news. Stephen experienced something that none of us can even imagine. Not here, not in America. We can't imagine it. We we think we, we, we experience persecution. Come on. This guy is killed for his faith, and it would seem that his life is relatively pointless. Here's a guy that probably had a promising ministry career, and it's snuffed out way too soon. And as a result of his death, more people are persecuted. Come on, that's not, that's not success. Do you know back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, you will be my witnesses. Do you know where? First in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the very ends of the earth. When Stephen is persecuted and killed, it sparks a persecution that scatters the church. They were kind of holding up there in Jerusalem. You know what? God says, let's go. It's time to get out of here. And you know what happened? Revival all in Judea and Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. A short life, it seems, snuffed out way too soon, but strategic and vital in the mission of God. Maybe you would like to have that kind of life at whatever age you are. You say, God, I don't know what you want to do with me. I don't have any idea. I'm pretty broken. I've got some stuff. I've got some junk. I've got some things in my past. I've got some habits. I've got some stuff. But God, I want you to use me. The first thing is to surrender completely to him. And then I've got four questions for you. You say, all right, I'm I'm ready. I got four questions. I'm going to give them to you pretty quick this morning. I want you to think about them. I want you to ponder them. I want you to go through them and pray through them and say, God, all right, I want to be used by you, Lord. I'm going to fully surrender to you. God, whatever you want to do, let me ask you four questions. Number one, how well do you know God's word? How well do you know the Bible? How well do you know it? Stephen faced a group of people who said the Bible said one thing and he said it said another. And it was his knowledge of Scripture and his his ability to understand it and to properly apply it that helped him be the man that God would use in that moment. It was his guide not only for what he believed, but also for how he behaved. Don't miss this. 
When you face a situation like Stephen did, and you will, if you are fully surrendered to God, he will put you in situations where he wants to use you and they won't be comfortable. And it's in those moments when you will be tempted to stand only on the Bible for what it says we should believe. Follow me here. Only for what we should believe. This is what I believe. We start hammering down, don't we? And we just keep shouting louder. Do you know the Bible also tells us how we should behave in those moments? (laughs) Not just what we should believe. It's a both and. We are not simply to be people of kindness and love. We are to be people of kindness and love who present the truth, the bold, difficult truth, with kindness and love. Stephen was that kind of guy. If all we're doing is shouting back and forth at one another online, we are not modeling Jesus Christ at all. At all. Stephen was a guy that knew the Bible, what he should believe, and he knew the Bible and knew the life of Jesus, so he knew how to act in those difficult situations that we are certain to face. I can't emphasize enough how important it is for you and I to know the Bible, to know it. If you want to be used by God, get to know him through his word. Put in the time. Don't just skim it. Don't give up. Don't cop out. Well, I can't understand it. Don't Don't stop. Dig into the scripture. I've told you if I, if I were to recommend any two places for you to start, and I would start in both places, start in the Gospels and start in Proverbs. Read both every day. The Gospels and Proverbs. And, and figure out a plan, look online, find you one, read those every single day. So how well do you know the Bible? We're not here to change the message, we're here to present the message, and so that we've got to understand it. Secondly, how do you handle opposition? Stephen never flinched, not once. Never flinched. We flinch, don't we? You ever flinch? You ever give in? You ever back down? You ever just shout louder? He, he never flinched. Now what's interesting here to me is that Stephen faced opposition primarily from religious people. He wasn't going to do things the way that those religious people said that religious people do things. I, I wonder what we would have done had we been there. I mean, okay guys, let's just talk about this for just a minute. Hold on. Let's... Everybody calm down. Let's talk about this. I mean, we're all on the same team, right? We're all, I mean, you know, we all basically believe, believe the same things, right? Stephen recognized they did not believe the same things. They did not believe the same things about Jesus. When he was asked, is this true? He could have said, well, not really. He just launches into a sermon to reiterate the truth that he'd been speaking. When he was given the opportunity to recant, take it all back, he simply leaned on the truth of Jesus. Speaking not to defend himself and not to defend his life, but maybe, just maybe, so those who heard him would have the chance to repent and receive Jesus. He handled opposition not by yelling and screaming back, but by living out the grace that comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you handle opposition? Do you fight? Do you back down? Neither one of those is what the Bible tells us we should do. Jesus was surrendered to God. Stephen surrendered to God in such a way that they were victorious even as they submitted, even as they surrendered. Truth is, if you expect no opposition for living a Christian life, you're pretty naive. And if you back down at the first sign of opposition, the Bible says your faith is weak. And if you fight back at opposition, the Bible says you need to die to yourself. And so I wonder what the path forward for you would be. How do you handle opposition? Thirdly, how forgiving are you? How forgiving are you? 
Stephen faced people that day who hated Jesus and who hated him who said things about him that weren't true, who physically assaulted him, who got others to pile on in the criticism, who wouldn't even listen to what he had to say, and who then murdered him. And he prayed for their salvation. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Does it sound familiar? What did Jesus say on the cross? Father, what? Forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen that day with people who hated Jesus, hated him, said all kinds of things about him, praise for their salvation. (laughs) I'll just shoot you straight. That ain't usually my response. Know what I mean? I'm praying for them. It's called fire from heaven. (laughs) That'll take care of it, won't it? Let me call down some fire. Consume them, Lord. This dude, man, I'm telling you. Filled, I mean, completely surrendered to God. No limit to what God can do through somebody like that. He found that he could pray for the salvation of his enemies. That's what God can do through somebody like that. It's unbelievable. C.S. Lewis said, I have forgiven the inexcusable in others because Christ has forgiven the inexcusable in me. That's how we forgive. We focus not on what we are owed by others, but what we truly are owed by Jesus and instead what we have received. And we forgive the inexcusable in others because they have forgiven, because Christ has forgiven the inexcusable in us. How forgiving are you? You want to be used by God, you're going to face plenty of people who are going to hurt you. Plenty of people who say things about you that aren't true, get others to pile on, who won't listen to what you have to say and can destroy you every chance they get. Learn to forgive them immediately to pray for their salvation, to go to God on their behalf every single day. And then fourthly and finally, how eternal are your priorities? Stephen was a young man with his whole life ahead of him. He could have accomplished so much for the Lord if he had lived. At least that's what we think. But he thought something entirely different. His priority was the gospel of Jesus Christ in life, and if God so chose, in death. In comfortable times and in difficult times, he said, that's my priority is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the eternal security and salvation of those that I'm around. If you want to be used by God, this world can no longer be your home. Can't get too comfortable here. Have to keep eternity in mind. When you get to the point of death, there should be, as I read this week from one commentator, nothing left but to die. Not anything that you regret that, oh, I wish I'd have lived for the Lord this way. Wish I'd done these things. Wish I'd talked to that person. Wish I invited those folks to church. Wish I'd gotten more involved. Nothing left but to die. (coughs) Nothing that you held back on because you were building a life for yourself here. Our mission has to be the spreading of the gospel. Nothing more and nothing less. To live radical lives potentially in the, line, in the eyes of the world, but radical for Jesus Christ, devoted to his gospel and to him. There's no limit to what God can do through someone who is completely surrendered to him. Jesus went to the cross, completely surrendered to the Father, that he might die for the sins of the world, that those far from him, those who were born sinners like you and me, might have the opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. No limit to what God has done through Jesus, who fully surrendered to the Father. 
And this morning, I wonder, would you, would you surrender like that? Would you say, God, use me. I completely surrender. God, I want to know your word. Lord, Lord I, I want to handle opposition your way. Lord, I want to be forgiving. Lord, I want eternal priorities. I wonder what your commitment needs to be today as you fully surrender to the Lord. Let's pray together.